I'm Natasha Tuzikoff. I'm an assistant professor in the criminology program in the Department of Social Science at York University in Toronto. And my talk today is titled Going Cashless in an Era of Digital Payments and Surveillance. Now, before I begin, I wanted to thank Professor, professor Marcus Duber and his whole team at the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto and uh, thank the team for this great series, The Ethics of COVID. And it's really a great opportunity to share research that we're working on, share research that people are thinking about while we're all distancing in this time of the pandemic. So before I start, I wanted to highlight my research interests, you know where I'm coming from as a researcher. Um, the questions that drive most of my research are who makes the rules that govern how we use the internet and more broadly digital technologies and how do they make these rules, how do they enforce them, who benefits from these rules and who bears the risk. My grounding as a regulatory scholar focuses my attention on how these rules are set and enforced and by whom. And I focus in my research on internet platforms, how they set rules and standards governing access to their service. And I focus a lot on the big US platforms, Google and Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, PayPal and eBay, but also some of the big Chinese platforms, specifically Alibaba. Now these platforms have become policymakers, how they set rules accessing uh, for people to access and use their services. And Sometimes they act independently on their own accord, and sometimes they act in cooperation or at the behest of governments. And they can act um, and be attractive regulators because they can set rules globally. These, these companies do operate in most countries around the world. They can enforce their rules without court orders or without the involvement of law enforcement, and they can terminate services without warning to those users. So today I'm going to talk about how the shift towards digital payments, especially through payment platforms, brings greater consumer surveillance. So first I'm going to talk a bit about the COVID pandemic and how it appears that we're shifting towards a cashless society. And next I'll talk about how these payment platforms actually operate and the implications of their business models, their very surveillance intensive, data intensive business models. Now, with a shift towards digital platforms, with this uh, surveillance that's an intrinsic part of digital platforms, what are the possible repercussions of a cashless society? So to think about that, I'll turn to a case study, and this is payment providers' anti-sex campaign, their campaign against people who work broadly in the sex industry, that these payment platforms talk about this industry being high risk and inappropriate. So finally, I'll discuss some lessons learned from this, uh, from this talk. So some are certainly uh, worried, some analysts and journalists, that the COVID pandemic is accelerating a shift towards a cashless society. And certainly some uh, retailers, some consumers are trying to avoid any interaction, any use of cash because of the perceived infection risk. So it's given really a new spin to the idea of dirty money, that uh, cash may be harboring the uh, COVID virus. Now, the World Health Organization says cash is about as risky as touching other common household objects like doorknobs um, and says that cash can really just uh, that risk can be alleviated by washing our hands instead of uh, an outright ban on uh, using cash. Now how widespread is this shift away from cash? It's really hard to tell. We're in the midst of the pandemic now. Uh, banks and uh, economists and other analysts are trying to figure out how widespread this shift is. 
you know, for example, in Britain, cash use has halved during the, the pandemic. The Canadian Bankers Association for here in Canada says consumers are increasingly shifting towards digital channels, uh, but cash use is still prevalent. But there are some contrasts in Germany, for example, uh, most in-person payments are still using cash and the volume of cash withdrawals in Germany during the COVID pandemic has actually doubled. So despite the World Health Organization saying that the, the risk from uh, cash is low, businesses and consumers are concerned. The Retail Council of Canada, for example, says that it's issuing disposable gloves to tellers who handle cash. Some retailers have uh, insisted or encouraged their consumers use payment cards, debit and credit cards, or digital methods to pay for goods. For example, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario said that its stores would try and limit the use of cash and ask customers to pay with credit or debit cards when possible. There's been other Canadian retailers, Best Buy, the shoe company, the grocery store Longos, they've in some cases and at some branches been refusing um, cash entirely. Now, our, there are some benefits for going cashless for, for some. This can be a fast, convenient way to pay, especially if people are worried about the risk of contagion. Um, people can avoid unwanted trips to ATMs or banks. And there can also be benefits for businesses of going cashless. If you don't accept cash, you don't have to carry a float because you're not making change for people. Um, it's easier to balance your transactions at the end of the day, and you may be making obviously fewer trips to deposit that money so your fears of robbery could be lessened. But there's a lot of challenges or problems with this idea of shifting away from cash. And we have to think about people who this, this might be a burden to. Now, according to uh, Bank of Canada survey in 2017, most Canadians have access to a credit card or a debit card. 99% of Canadians have access to a debit card, 89% a credit card, but the number of Canadians reliant on cash is probably higher than these figures suggest. And the Bank of Canada during the pandemic has explicitly recognized that a ban on cash could put an undue burden on people who depend on cash. It's important to remember not everyone has a bank account, payment or a credit card. Uh, for example, there's 40 million people in Europe who don't have a bank account. And even if you do have a bank account, uh, your debit card may be of little use if you don't have any money or have very little money in your bank account. Some people have, of course, low cost bank accounts that have very few free transactions. So once you reach your limit, you're actually paying to use your debit card. And people, of course, might have, might have uh, maxed out credit cards. And then there's in populations who are dependent on cash, particularly homeless people who might rely on panhandling to survive or to augment their income. And there are people who avoid digital channels because they're reluctant to share their financial details online, reluctant to have uh, records made of their purchase. Now, the question is, will this shift away from cash persist after the pandemic, change our long-term financial habits. Someone who's been thinking about this is uh, Walid Hijazi. He's an associate professor of economic analysis and policy at the University of Toronto. And according to Dr. Hijazi, the payment, the pandemic is going to be a big shock to this system, a shock that will push us in the direction of a more modernized payment system. So if trends continue, this move towards a cashless society will happen more quickly because of this pandemic.
So as the use of cash has decreased, there's questions of how this might affect how we use payments, how we actually buy goods and services in the long term. And in my research, I'm particularly interested in how a shift to digital platforms could increase consumer surveillance. So where do we look for precedence in relation to the future of surveillance, the future of surveillance of, of consumers? And I like to look to uh, sociologist, American sociologist, Virginia Eubanks, who says, we can see the future of surveillance by looking at how the most vulnerable in society are surveilled. So Virginia Eubanks studies how poor women on social assistance are surveilled in the United States by various government agencies. So government agencies track their spending, especially when that's electronic, question women on their spending habits, and even ask the women in which sexual position was their child conceived. So Eubanks argues that surveillance tools are first tested and piloted on the most vulnerable population, like poor women on social assistance, and then these surveillance tools may be rolled out to a broader population. So in terms of payment, some analysts are concerned that a shift away from cash will leave big credit card companies like Visa, MasterCard, and digital payment platforms as gatekeepers of spending. And a question that stems from that is who will bear the brunt of this increased surveillance of consumers through digital payment platforms? So today I'm gonna to talk about how payment platforms monitor and block payments of people connected to the sex industry. But before that, I wanna put surveillance and money in a bit of context. So everyone who has a credit card is likely aware that the credit card companies track our payments. And sometimes this can be beneficial. So when the companies contact us in relation to a suspected fraudulent purchase, if our card has been stolen or if we're making an, a, a purchase that is not characteristic of our spending habits. But this means that the companies track our spending intensely and monitor our spending for so-called atypical behavior. More broadly, surveillance is embedded, ingrained in our financial system, particularly our systems of credit, both consumer and commercial. So whenever someone uses a credit card in person or online, there's a largely invisible surveillance network that checks our identity, verifies our financial details, and then records the transaction. Now, all of this takes only milliseconds. So how did we get here? So for those interested in consumer surveillance in regards to our financial system, there's a terrific book, 2018 by Josh Lauer, a media studies in the United States, uh, media studies professor. He's called, and the book is called Creditworthy, A History of Consumer Surveillance and Financial Identity in America. And Lauer traces the history of both commercial and consumer credit bureaus in the United States. And it's really a fascinating story. These credit bureaus, uh, the consumer credit bureaus first emerged in the 1870s following the establishment of commercial credit rating systems. And the consumer credit bureaus began building huge archives, huge archives and file systems of personal information. They collected data on consumers, on people, not only their names and addresses, but marital status, health, legal and criminal history, job performance, intimate details of people's domestic arrangements, children who they lived with, and sometimes even their physical appearance. So these credit bureaus, Lauer argues, were really comprehensive surveillance dossiers. And these credit bureaus really morphed into our modern equivalent. We have Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, and indeed Experian and Equifax have roots dating back to the 1890s. 
And our modern credit bureaus are multi-billion dollar firms that track our movements, our spending behavior, and our financial status. They determine our riskiness, our financial identity. Are we subprime uh, uh, available for subprime um, mortgages or loans? Do we deserve credit? Right? Are we a subprime uh, candidate for a subprime loan? And these credit bureaus are used to determine our financial identity in areas uh, other than um, commercial or consumer credit, including insurance, employment, and housing. Now, what's important about the history of credit it, to our current movement is it shows that surveillance is ingrained or embedded into our financial system. And it's really important to recognize that it was uh, credit surveillance or uh, consumer uh, surveillance by companies that paved the way for state surveillance. So in the United States, commercial surveillance was actually the forerunner. It preceded many state surveillance systems in monitoring the economic lives of Americans. And the US credit reporting industry continues to be an incredibly pervasive, incredibly data intensive system collecting personal information on Americans. And in the United States, even as in the early 1900s, uh, we see the expansion of law enforcement agencies, the expansion of government departments, the consumer credit agencies were um, dominant in collecting personal information. So much so that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Internal Revenue Service often turned to the credit bureaus for information about people they wanted to investigate. So simply put, our contemporary surveillance capitalism is, can, be, can be traced in some cases back to these 19th century lists and ledgers of con, uh, consumer surveillance. And platforms, our modern payment platforms like PayPal, take this consumer surveillance several steps further. And this is because surveillance is the business model of these platforms. So in my research, I study how these big payment platforms act as regulators on their own and at the behest of states. And it's important to recognize that these big payment platforms have a regulatory capacity that stems from two fundamental features. So first, these platforms have considerable latitude in drafting and interpreting and enforcing their own rules. And they're able to do this because they have contractual terms of service agreements between their users and the platforms. And so these are the long, legal, complex agreements that many of us never read when we sign up to apps and services. Their enforcement of these rules, how they draft these rules and how they enforce them are undertaken with little independent oversight or public dis uh, uh, disclosure. And moreover, because some of these platforms are so enormous, their rules govern the conduct of hundreds of millions of people. Now, second, uh, companies like PayPal have regulatory capacity because they undertake pervasive surveillance. So a company like PayPal routinely surveils its users to make sure that the users aren't breaking any of PayPal's rules. But they also surveil their users because they have a business model built on amassing and analyzing their users' data in order to influence and predict consumer behavior. Right? So they use mass, often automated data collection and data analytics. And the point is to determine what will consumers do next? What will they buy next? What service will they want next? So more, most broadly, what these platforms do is collect and interpret data in order to serve their commercial interests, both on the security side, checking for violations, but also on the 
undertaking and creating new services and, and products. So for those people who might be less familiar with PayPal, it's an online platform that performs money transfers and processes payments. So PayPal lets you make payments from your PayPal account, from a bank account, or through debit or credit cards. And in order to allow us, uh, the users, to pay through credit cards, this means that PayPal has to abide by the rules set by the credit card companies. So I think of Visa and MasterCard American Express. Now, PayPal's users also have to obey those rules set by the credit card companies. So this means that if Visa or MasterCard prohibit something, like erotica, then you can't purchase that good using PayPal, um, uh, using PayPal in your Visa card through PayPal. So like all companies, like all of these platforms, PayPal's rules incorporate national laws, for example, against uh, fraud or the distribution of child sexual abuse content, but they also have industry-specific rules and company-specific rules. And these are set within the contractual terms of service agreements that I spoke about before. Now, what platforms also have is a broad stipulation that they can prohibit inappropriate behavior. What's inappropriate? Whatever the company deems inappropriate. Even if the behavior or the content in question is lawful, companies can decide it's inappropriate for their service and ban that user, terminate their account. So this means that PayPal, along with any of the other payment platforms or social media companies, can terminate its service at any time for any reason without any announcement to the user of what rules they violated. So this means that platforms, especially payment platforms, can be really powerful regulators. Payment platforms can freeze your funds, they can shut your account temporarily or permanently, and even if you try and shift to another payment method, when one of the big payment platforms bans your account, it can be really difficult to get another account. And this is because some of the smaller players tend to adopt rules the larger players like Visa or PayPal uh, set. So what this might be is mean is that people can be left without the capacity to sell goods, to raise money through donations, to transfer funds. Now, PayPal, as I've said, is a data intensive uh, company. It's important to recognize a little what that means. So like all payment platforms, PayPal collects a wide variety of data. It has about 227 million accounts, 255 of those consumer accounts. Breaking it down, it means that there's about 40 million accounts active monthly. And PayPal collects data on all of these accounts. This can be concerning because how we buy goods and services can reveal a lot about us, very sensitive information about us, about our political views, religion, health, and sexual habits. So what kind of data does PayPal or these other platforms collect? So certainly the fund sender's name, who's sending the, the, the money, their mailing address, their email address, telephone numbers, account numbers, but also the party receiving the funds, the transaction amount, the merchant information, the location, the device that you use to connect to PayPal, the internet protocol address for that, web browsers, information on the apps, and any biometric data. So if you have biometric data to open your phone, PayPal can collect some of that information. Now, PayPal allows its customers to link their social media account to their PayPal account. And if you do so, which is um, a risky thing to do in terms of privacy, this means that PayPal can collect information from your social contacts, your activities, your attitudes, your interests from your social media platform. 
So all of this means that PayPal's model is one, its business model is one of surveillance capitalism, similar to these other platforms. These companies collect and interpret and commodify data in order to augment, to improve or strengthen, expand their existing products and services and to develop new products and services. So why focus on payment platforms in the sex industry when thinking about going cashless? And this is because there's big payment actors who have waged an anti-sex campaign for nearly a decade. And so this is banks, think big American banks like JP Morgan, uh, payment card associations, Visa, MasterCard, and payment platforms, PayPal, and now new payment processors like Square. Now these financial actors are systematically closing or denying accounts. So this isn't a random one-off. This is an organized systematic campaign. And the people who are targeted are those who sell or share or make sexual or erotic content. So often this is uh, called not suitable for work, NSFW, right? And it's a broad, broad category of content and services. So this includes pornography, adult, legal adult pornography, sexual services, which may be legal in some jurisdictions, but more broadly it includes art, books, videos, music, fan fiction, clothing, it's very broad. The campaign is surveillance intensive, so it involves a massive collection and analysis of data and to determining who fits these high risk categories of producing not suitable for work content. So despite these platforms being American platforms and espousing free speech, there is uh, this, this area of speech, sexual or erotic content that the companies do not agree with and are seeking or undertaking a very heavy handed regulatory approach against these, uh, these individuals. A problem with this campaign too is that it's, it's ambiguous. It's hard to tell who's being targeted or why. People don't tend to get a detailed explanation of why they've been banned, why their accounts have been frozen, but simply a generic explanation of your information, your conduct, what you're selling is high risk and you've been banned. Now, Platform's anti-sex campaign can be uh, described or understood as a form of digital redlining. So redlining uh, was a, a legal but very discriminatory financial practice beginning in the 1930s in the United States. This was a set of policies, a set of policies and practices undertaken by governments, real estate agents and uh, banks, as well as communities. And the purpose was to exclude black people from owning real estate or living in white majority communities. So banks denied mortgages and governments systematically and, and discriminatorily funneled money to white majority communities, to white homeowners. Communities themselves uh, were involved creating exclusionary white-only subdivisions using zoning laws and predatory contracts. Now the term actually comes from policymakers who uh, ranked communities on maps using the most desirable, green, to the least desirable, red. Greenland communities were largely white, redland communities were predominantly black. And as journalist and author Violet Blue notes, redlining became a verb. Quote, to redline a community was to cut it off from equal financial access, rights and opportunities. Being redlined was a death sentence for getting out of poverty. So redlining was outlawed in 1968 in the United States with the US Fair Housing Act. And while legal, 
redlining is prohibited now. We still see discriminatory financial transactions being, or financial policies being practiced. And we saw this, of course, in the Great Recession in 2009, with banks targeting racialized communities, largely black communities, for risky subprime mortgages. So the idea of redlining is implicit in this idea of digital redlining. So digital redlining refers to a systematic discriminatory practice of denying services to people based on a particular trait of a particular characteristic. So we see this race in terms of traditional redlining. And we see in digital redlining, one key target is people who work in the sex industry associated uh, with sexually identified um, content or practices. So the sex industry, as I've said, is pretty broadly defined here. Anyone who sells any service or product related to sex or erotica. And it's important to note that this isn't a one-off, not an isolated case. It's an organized systematic campaign. So Violet Blue, have the journalist and author, educator, has written extensively about big banks' campaign against the sex industry. And she argues that this targets a whole range of people, porn performers, sex workers, independent retailers, uh, people who sell in books and art, erotic writers. And this sex industry is uh, a business sector made up uh, disproportionately of women and people from the LGBTQ plus community. So how have payment platforms specifically undertaken this online payment blockade or campaign against the sex industry? So platforms have a policy relating to obscenity, and they broadly interpret this sometimes as prohibitions against pornography. PayPal has an acceptable use policy that says that you can't use PayPal for any activities, quote, that relate to transactions involving items that are considered obscene or certain sexually oriented materials or services. And so PayPal interprets what's considered obscene and PayPal interprets what's considered sexually oriented materials and services. And PayPal's taken a particularly tough stance in regards to policing sex. And Violet Blue refers to PayPal as the king of denying services, seizing accounts, freezing funds for anyone discovered to be associated with sexual content online. And this is the case even in educational content, even artistic content. So, for example, there's a broad range of examples. I'll mention just a few here. PayPal has frozen accounts and seized funds in relation to a calendar put on by the New York City sex blogger. PayPal has uh, banned an adult industry writer, Kara Sutra, for selling a corset, an item of clothing. A former escort, Vicky Gala, was banned from selling her memoir in part because it featured her uh, involvement in sex work. And an entire artistic festival, the Seattle Erotic Art Festival, had its PayPal account frozen. And this was even though the festival was using the service just to process the submission fees. And so just the submission fees for people who wanted to apply to have their art shown in this festival. So PayPal has also taken action against a crowdfunding site, the subscription model crowdfunding site Patreon. And PayPal told Patreon, remove the PayPal option for all of the people on your site who are selling adult content. We don't want PayPal used for those services. It's important to remember PayPal is not alone among digital platforms in its anti-sex stance. The payment processor Square has also banned people from their Square accounts. So what explains this? What explains uh, digital payment platforms, tough stance against the sex industry? So, 
it's pretty complicated and partly this is because online payment processing is complex as is the operation of these credit card networks so payment processors like square blame the banks like jp morgan that issue the credit cards but these banks often deny involvement and they in turn blame the credit card companies like visa and mastercard now crowdfunder patreon says that paypal forced it to remove PayPal accounts from Patreon, but PayPal said it was just following orders that it got from the credit card companies, Visa and MasterCard. Visa and MasterCard denied this and claimed that it's PayPal taking these, these uh, orders on its own. So really what we're seeing here is a classic case of blame shifting, of buck passing, and it's really difficult to determine with any accuracy who's issuing these orders to ban these services. So in some cases, there may be a lack of clarity among these platforms as to what's legal in terms of what type of sexual service or what type of content. But in cases where it is uh, um, unequivocally legal in the seller and uh, purchaser's jurisdiction, it's unclear exactly who's ordering these payment uh, accounts to be banned or why. And so that's really a problem when these, these lines of accountability and lines of responsibility are so fuzzy. And even when people do receive some kind of, uh, some kind of reason for why their account is frozen, it's typically very generic, right? Your account was high risk. Your account violates acceptable use policies. Well, that's very broad and doesn't people give people an idea of what they could change to reinstate their account. Now, there are strong socio-cultural components to PayPal um, payment providers' anti-sex stance. Um, these companies aren't alone. It's not just payment platforms uh, declaring war on the sex industry. For example, the social media platform Tumblr changed its policy in 2018 to prohibit adult content. So the ban that Tumblr instituted is a ban on any imagery that features, quote, real-life human genitals or female-presenting nipples. Also, any content, including photos, videos, or illustrations depicting sex acts. Now, before Tumblr announced this sex ban in 2018, it was one of the largest communities sharing all things related to sex and erotica. And it was really well known and, and loved for its very vibrant, inclusive atmosphere. But what happened was Apple removed the Tumblr app from Apple's App Store. Apple said that this was in relation to child pornography, uh, reports of child pornography on the Tumblr site. Child pornography is illegal. But instead of Tumblr simply taking action against illegal child sexual abuse content, Tumblr decided to purge its app of all sexual content, all legal adult sexual content and erotica. Uh, so this included artwork, fan fiction, photos, videos, all manner of, of content. Now, Facebook and Twitter, too, have a long practice of banning certain content, and they're especially puritanical when it comes to women's health and sexuality. So there's lots of examples of Facebook and Twitter banning any content to do with menstruation, for example, or uh, anyone breastfeeding babies. So there are some lessons we can take from this, uh, lessons from payment providers' bans on sexual erotic content. And the first is that payment actors wield considerable regulatory power. So credit card companies have long acted as gatekeepers, uh, determining how and for what reasons their services can be used. 
And we really see that large payment platforms like PayPal can act as choke points, throttling unwanted or problematic activity and starving certain actors, denying them any funds, whether through selling goods or services or raising money through donations. Now they have significant regulatory capacity, but this is hugely problematic in terms of accountability and in terms of uh, transparency and due process. It's really difficult to determine who's responsible for issuing orders, why platforms are, are why accounts are denied or banned, and the appeal process for people to get their accounts back. So the second lesson is that regulation undertaken through algorithms is highly imprecise where these platforms are using algorithms to block or to identify payments relating to keywords like sex or pornography, there are lots of false positives. So people working and behaving lawfully, exchanging legal uh, content, may have their funds blocked, as we saw from those examples, for selling a memoir, for selling a corset. Educational material, artistic material, fan fiction, music is being wrongly blocked. Now, automated payment and account blocking is pretty problematic because this online payment industry is highly concentrated. So there's many payment options, but a lot of these payment options use credit cards or uh, PayPal. So if the credit card companies or PayPal have already banned someone or blocked someone, it's very difficult sometimes to switch to another payment service. And finally, there's a strong tendency among these firms to amass ever more personal data on their users. So as I talked about, the roots of this consumer surveillance um, uh, phenomenon is evident in the 1840s, formalizing with the first uh, consumer credit bureaus in the 1870s in the United States. So this is a long history of amassing very detailed personal information to perform surveillance on consumers. And we see that the financial industry today continues to amass uh, a massive amounts of, of personal data, sorting users into categories. Are you a good risk? Are you a bad risk? And discerning patterns in consumer behavior. Now, platforms like PayPal are, are continuing this logic of, of uh, accumulation, accumulating as much data as possible. And what this really means um, is that money is data, right? So financial transactions, uh, financial institutions traditionally thrive on money, right? What the types of transactions, different amounts of transactions. But what we see with platforms now is that the actual data on those transactions is increasingly valuable. Right? Who sent the funds? To whom? When? From what device? At what time? Uh, using what payment method are all valuable data, increasingly more valuable than the actual uh, information on the transactions themselves. And what this means then is that our surveillance society, our consumer surveillance society is here to stay. And it also means that a cashless society is a surveillance society, a surveillance intensive society. And a society relying on these, these data intensive platforms also trends towards a society with deep inequality, deep unfairness towards populations that have a disproportionate scrutiny. So we're seeing that digital technologies are replicating or further entrenching inequality when I talked about digital redlining. And it really raises the question, how might digital redlining evolve? How might it develop in terms of payment platforms or other types of platforms? In what areas might we see other examples of digital redlining? 
for example, health apps or health platforms, COVID tracing apps that governments around the world are adopting, testing and using now, educational platforms. So how could and how should digital redlining be countered? And these are vital areas for future research. So thanks for listening. I hope you found this interesting. If you would like more information on my research, you can find me at on Twitter at Ntuzikov. Thank you.